have been around for a while know that I've been doing a study into the book of Ephesians and I've had three three goes at it so far and I still haven't got to the end Um, and today I want to continue um, with that and in fact uh, even though we are continuing on from where we left off we're not actually going to do an awful lot of verses today Um, but we're going to be looking into some depth I guess you might say but um, I've just been trying to be sensitive to where God wants to lead me in bringing this this um, message this morning. So just because it's teaching, don't turn off, because the Lord wants to speak to us this morning. So by way of introduction, um, what have we gone over so far? Well, the book of the Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Gentile churches in Ephesus and in the surrounding regions. Uh, There were two types of people back then, according to the Jews. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. The Jews could be saved, the Gentiles couldn't. Um, There was no hope for them, they were lost, and and basically the only way for them to be saved was for them to become a Jew. Um, And so then something happened, uh, and... And uh, what they didn't realize, uh, the, the early church didn't realize at the beginning, became all too obvious once God started to move. They, um, the Gentiles started to be saved. And God made a way for the Gentiles to be saved exactly the same as the Jews. And the first half, uh, the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians is talking about what an awesome thing that is that the Gentiles could be saved exactly the same way as the Jews. And it goes into some depth, and it, it goes into and, and, and makes a, a, a point in a case of just how amazing and how awesome that this group of people that had no hope in the past, in the Old Testament, now has hope. And we're the Gentiles. We're not Jews. I don't believe there's any of us here that are Jews. But we have been saved. We have this way, this incredible way of escape from the world and from everything that is in it through the grace and the compassion and the mercy and the power of God. Paul himself was a Jew, a former Pharisee who was the the greatest of the spiritual leaders of the time. And we find out just how how much they were lacking um, by the words that Jesus had to say. But they were the strictest. They were the ones that had it most together in that period of time. And Paul was a former Pharisee who had been taught perfectly in all the laws and the commandments of God and of the Pharisees. He knew everything. He knew what it was and he knew who could be saved. He knew who couldn't. He knew what people needed to do to be saved in that time. But then the church age came and everything changed. And so Paul is writing knowing what, ha- what, what the past was and knowing what the present was. And so he, he talks about that. So the second part of the book of the Ephesians is, um, is instruction and warning against the things of the world which come naturally to the Gentiles, to us, and, to the, things, and the things of God which don't come naturally to us. This epistle was written directly to the Gentile churches. It wasn't written to the Jews. It wasn't written to uh, the ones that had known the ways of God all of their lives. 
So it contains instruction on things that mostly pertain to the Gentiles, to those that weren't Jews, and the way that the Gentiles think and have been brought up. We see evidence of every single issue that is brought out in people around us today who don't follow God. It's natural. It's part of the natural carnal man. The Jews had the law of God already from generation to generation, so they had a good idea of what was acceptable to God and what wasn't. Transferring those concepts to the Jewish church was easy, but the Gentiles had to be taught from scratch. And so this is one of the reasons why the book of Ephesians was written. And that's why Paul spent a lot of time and detail into instructing these Gentiles in the ways of God. So we've been through the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, uh, book of the Ephesians, and we have got up to, well, we ended last time on Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 16. So now we're going to start on Ephesians chapter 4 verse 17, if you would like to turn there. And this is where Paul starts getting into the practical side of, of his teaching to the Ephesian church. So Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17. This I say therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. So Paul has, through the last three and a bit chapters, set the stage for what he wants to talk about here. He's saying this is say therefore. So based on everything that I've said before, this is what I want to talk to you about now. And he's set the stage. He's saying how awesome it is that they can be saved, how incredible, how mighty, how powerful it is that God has made this way. And so now we're getting to the meat of what he wants to talk about. They henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. The way we as Christians live in this world should bear no resemblance to the value systems of this world. The people of this world walk in the vanity of their mind. They have their own way of thinking and determining what is right and wrong with no regard to God's ways or His principles. The reasoning of this world doesn't even acknowledge the existence of God. People are taught to be humanistic in schools and especially universities. What is humanism? Well, I looked up the Googletron and I found a definition for humanism, which is a good, a good description. Humanism is a rationalist outlook or system of thought attaching prime importance to human rather than divine or supernatural matters. So, rationalist, it's all about thinking, it's all about your own reasoning and it's, it's talking about humans being the center of everything. Basically, humanism means that people believe that all of the problems in the world can be solved by human thinking, reasoning, and actions. You've heard the phrase, we got ourselves into this mess, now we just have to get ourselves out of it. That line of thought comes from humanism. There's no consideration that any mess could be big enough that people could even possibly need to seek outside help. The truth is, everybody in this world is in a mess that's far bigger than anything they or anyone else could pull them out of. The Bible says that all people have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 says exactly that, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
Only God can forgive sins. Luke chapter 5, verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answering said unto them, What reason ye in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Rise up and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he said unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy couch, and go into thine house. Only God has the power to free to deliver from sins. There's only one, and there's only one eternal destination for those that sin. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's comparing contrasting the wages of sin and the gift of God. Death isn't just talking about dying on this earth. It's a spiritual death. It's talking about dying without God. And it's talking about an eternal death um, because the contrast is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord when we follow and walk in his ways. Hebrews 10.26 says, For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. This isn't just something that people in the church would experience if they went out, but it's something that all men will experience if they don't follow God. But the world doesn't even acknowledge that there is such a thing as sin nowadays. The world has now gone beyond humanism to something called postmodernism. Postmodernism is a worldview, a way people look and think and, and view the world in which there is no true reality and nothing should be categorized. There's no categories. Scientific truth and objectivity are discarded, so you can't even prove anything. And it is left to each individual person to form their own concept of reality. This is what people believe today. This is the way that people are understanding and more and more people are looking and understanding this way, particularly the younger generation as they grow up. Flowing on from this concept is social constructivism, which is a big word that just basically means that society as a whole determines what is truth. So if you want to find truth, then you find what the, the greater portion of society thinks about it. That is what people are believing today. This is one of the reasons why we have this postal vote on same-sex marriage going out at the moment, because society is going to determine supposedly what is truth and what isn't, what should happen and what shouldn't. And a growing number of people don't even acknowledge that there is a God. We have the theory of evolution to thank for a lot of that. Even though it is completely implausible and has never even come close to being proven, it's a theory. It's always been a theory. The theory of evolution gives people an excuse to believe that everything happened by chance and that there doesn't even have to be a creator of all that we can see around us. And yet you don't have to look too far into anything to see the hand of the creator of a creator and not a hand of chance. In fact, the closer you look at anything God has created, the more amazing things become. 
Let's just look at one small thing for today. DNA. DNA in itself is very small. Do you know what DNA is? It's a biological computer program engineered to trigger changes in living organisms in a precise sequence at exactly the right times. And it's far smaller than anything we can see with the naked human eye. Human engineers, we're all made up of DNA, by the way. Um, we have DNA in every part of us. Human engineers, even after years and years of sweat, blood and tears, can't even produce working computers anywhere near that small. The smallest working computer, the Michigan Micromote, or M-cubed, as they call it, was engineered in 2015, not too long ago, and has a size of one millimeter cubed. So it's very small. So it's smaller than a grain of rice. It's a remarkable feat of engineering, but it doesn't hold a candle to DNA, which is far smaller and far more complex. I'm a computer programmer. I know how to tell computers where to go and what to do. There's a real satisfaction in building something that is useful and can increase people's productivity by writing a computer program that can do that. But usually it comes after a lot of hard work and effort. It's not by chance. And the smallest mistake can cause the program not to work as it was intended. It might be a missing equal sign in the code that you write or a missing semicolon. Just something that's very small can cause huge changes in what you're trying to do and make it not work or do something completely different entirely. An error so small can have a huge impact on whether a program actually works or not. And even with the best design and programming practices in the world, people make mistakes. And these mistakes are called bugs in the code or in the program. It's pretty easy to write simple programs that are completely bug-free. But as soon as you try to do something more complex, you need to take into account more and more things. Everything works together in, in more and more ways, and there's more ways that the interactions can go wrong. There are more and more possible ways that the program can go wrong. Even professionals, the best in their field, don't get everything right all the time. And most companies ship their software with known bugs. It's become an accepted practice because even with the most intelligent and talented programmers in the world, with the best designs and programming practices, things go wrong. And they can be hard to fix or debug. So they just end up sending it out and letting people try to work out all their problems for them. So when I look at the strands of DNA in every living person and thing and how flawlessly the DNA performs, it's incredibly complex instructions with no outside assistance. There is only one possible conclusion that I can come to. DNA has been engineered. And not just engineered, but engineered in such a way and on such a scale that people can only dream of getting anywhere near close to. And the scientists want me to believe that it all just happened by chance. If I try to type random numbers, letters, and symbols into a computer program and hit run, any respectable computer programmer would laugh at me if I expected it to work. But this is the basic premise of evolution, that out of nothing or chaos, order came. 
and not just a little bit of order, but ever-increasing order, getting better all the time, all on its own. There's something that scientists have found. It's called the second law of thermodynamics. And it's a law, which means that it's been proven. It's not a theory, it's a law. And this second law of thermodynamics states that the law, sorry, states that the state of disorder of the entire universe as an isolated system, so nothing coming in and changing things, will always increase over time. So the amount of disorder in the universe will always increase. Second law also states that the changes in the disorder in the universe can never be negative. So you can't have all of this disorder and then suddenly there become order from it. And this is a law that has been found to be true over many, many years. This is a law, not a theory like the theory of evolution, so it has been proven to be true. What does this second law mean in layman terms? It means that anything that you put into place is going to get less and less effective without any external force helping it. It also says that you can't get order from disorder. There can't be any negative changes to the disorder in the universe. For example, build a building and don't maintain it. No external forces. Does the building get stronger or does it start to decay? Buy a machine with moving parts. Does it get better with time or does it eventually wear out and break? Everything that is created moves from a state of high order and fulfilling its original purpose to decay and disrepair. It is a it's the law of the natural world around us. Even our bodies start to break down and decay as we get older because of Adam and Eve's sin. That's not the way that God originally designed us to be, but that is what happens in our bodies because of that sin. But evolution chooses to ignore the laws that God has placed right in front of people's eyes, to believe that order came from chaos, from disorder on its own and by chance, despite nothing else ever having done that before. There's no evidence of that ever happening in any other situation or circumstance. It stretches the bounds of belief to breaking point and beyond. But mankind is so desperate to get God out of the picture and keep God out that they will grasp at anything that appears to be somewhat rational. The reality is that believing in evolution is the only possible way to keep God or a creator out of people's minds because the evidence is overwhelming. Before the theory of evolution came into play, everybody believed that there was a God. And that's because the evidence is overwhelming. You can go to people and cultures and, and nations and, and they can be completely cut off and separated from the rest of the world and yet they believe that there is some kind of a God or gods because the evidence is overwhelming. Everything that you see, everything that you go out, you see the trees, you see the plants, you see the animals, you see the variety, you see the adaptability, you see everything, and everything points that there is a God who has created and who has brought everything into play. But then you get people who have warped and twisted ideas that tickle people's ears, that tickle the intelligent person's uh, thoughts, their, their, their mind, and it gives them something to believe in. 
The theory of evolution is a belief system, just like any other religion. It's just a religion that chooses to say that there is no God. If there was a more plausible theory than evolution to keep God out of people's thoughts and people's minds, someone would have come up with it by now because of the flaws and the lack of evidence to even begin to prove the theory of evolution. Evolution is all that atheists have to believe in. So that is why they are so protective and forceful against any and all possible threats to their belief. If their stack of cards falls, they've got no backup. There's no backup theory. There's nothing else that they can fall back on to say that, you know, oh, well, you know, all right, that one was wrong. We, we, can, we can believe in this instead. There is no other possible thing that they can turn to. They've got nowhere to go but to believe that there is a God, and so they will protect their theory with intensity and with passion because that's all that they have. All right, enough, enough about the vanity of people's minds. Back to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18. Having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness, which is basically unrestrained lusts, to work all uncleanness with greediness. When people live according to the vanity of their mind, it's a spiritual blocker that affects every part of their lives. They find it difficult to understand simple spiritual and biblical truths. They can't even find the path to start walking with God because they don't have any knowledge of God. They can't even feel God's presence in their hearts because they are spiritually blind. The Greek word porosis has been translated here as blindness but it could also be correctly translated as hardness. So the passage would then read because of the hardness of their heart. The blindness, the hardness of their heart. And as a result of their confused and hardened state, they find it easy to give themselves over to their own lusts and desires with greediness. This is a, a small excerpt from a book called The Bride's Pearl, a commentary on Ephesians which is authored by a UPC minister, Reverend Brian Kinsey, talking about the with greediness. Paul warned the Ephesians that once God has given them up, they will perform all manner of evil with greediness. The Greek word for that is pleonexia. This word means to possess more than what one should possess or to desire what someone else has. When people strive to have only so to have more, only for the sake of having more, God considers their greed to be both immoral and idolatrous. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 and 5, we'll look at in a later, um, in a later uh, message on the book of Ephesians. God wants his people to be content with their earthly possessions while desiring spiritual things. The fact that Paul needed to remind and warn these Gentile believers means that it is possible to be in the church and then start walking in the vanity of your mind. It starts off small, then it snowballs through the different levels given in these scriptures. First, you start walking in the vanity of your mind. You start 
doing what you think. You start thinking, you start having thoughts, your own thoughts that are not aligned with the Word of God. And then your understanding is darkened because of that. You start thinking the way you want to think. You have your own beliefs. And then you, you're less able to hear the Word of God. You're less able to understand what God is telling you over the pulpit or what you read in the Word of God. Your understanding is darkened because of that. And blindness in your heart soon follows on as a direct result of that. Then, because your understanding is darkened and your heart is blind, you're alienated through the, from the life of God through your ignorance. And then you lose spiritual feeling. You're unable to tell the difference between right and wrong. In a similar manner to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, where it says, Speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. It's something that you can no longer tell what is right and what is wrong. And then, following on from that, you give yourself over to lusts and to pleasures. And the worst part of it is that you think you're all right. It's been a slow process, and you've gone through each of the stages, and you keep thinking, oh, I'm all right in this first stage. I'm all right in this second stage. I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm all right. And you think that you're still following God, and you're walking close to Him when you're so far away that you can't even tell the difference. This is a great warning to all believers of Jesus. This can happen to us. Ephesians 4 and verse 20. But ye have not so learned Christ. Jesus didn't teach us that we should walk like the rest of the world. He taught us that we should live above the rest of the world. And not because we're better than the rest of the world. After all, we were just like the rest of the world before the power of Jesus came and lifted us out of sin and out of death. So not because we're better in any way than anybody else but simply because He has given us the power to overcome sin and live above sin. Romans chapter 6, and starting from verse 1, says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. God has given us the power to live above. He has basically caused us to die to sin. When we die to ourselves, when we make that choice to die to ourselves every single day, our fleshly and to our fleshly desires and to what we want, then we are truly buried with Jesus in baptism. And we can live a holy and overcoming life over sin. But when we walk in the vanity of our minds and do what we want, when we want to, then we are carnal and we are sliding down a slippery slope. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 21. If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. As we've discussed in a previous lesson, Paul spent a lot of time in Ephesus and with the Ephesian church. 
So he wasn't asking whether they had heard Jesus and his teachings or not, simply because he didn't know. Paul knew. He knew that they knew. He'd already done a lot of that teaching himself, which was followed on by those who had been established as pastors and ministers in that place. So Paul knew that they knew. So why did Paul write this passage? Why did he say if? He was saying that if anyone had ever heard of Jesus at all or any of his teachings, they would know, it would be obvious, that Jesus taught a completely different lifestyle to that than that of the Gentile world. And the only truth that we will ever get in this corrupt and dying world is Jesus. John chapter 4 verse 16 says, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So Jesus is all truth. Jesus is the only truth that we can trust in wholeheartedly. People, even good people, will let you down. But you will always find truth, and the truth is in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4.22, that you put off concerning the former conversation, the conversation, the way of life that you used to live, the old man, the way that you used to live, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. What did Jesus teach us about putting off the old man? Matthew 16.24 says, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? This is what Jesus taught us about how we should live. It's not about the stuff we can have. It's not about getting more and more stuff. It's not about promotions. It's not about work. It's not about prestige. It's not about power. It's not about fame. <clears throat> it's about dying to ourselves and following the ways of Jesus, taking up our cross and following him. And in a parallel passage in the epistle to the Romans, it says in Romans 8.12, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So when we follow Jesus, when we don't walk in our own ways, in our own lusts, our own desires, our own carnality, we are the sons of God. But when we walk in our own ways, when we do what we want to do, then we're not the sons of God. We're walking in our own ways and we're on that slippery slope that we just talked about. Our old man, our flesh, the way that we used to live, is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Titus chapter 3 and verse 3 talks about this. It says, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. These things are just really the vanity of our mind. They're the stuff that we do when we're not really following God. 
But after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs, but sons of God, according to the hope of eternal life. We used to be like this once, but we have no excuse to live like that anymore. Jesus has completely washed and cleansed us of our old sins and our old lifestyles. So why should we even think to pick them up again? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. And it goes against everything that God, that Jesus would teach us to do. Ephesians 4 and verse 23, And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. The epistle to the Romans has more to say about this renewal. Romans 12 and 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So how are we renewed in the spirit of our mind? By replacing the junk thoughts, the junk ways of thinking that we have with God's Word. The renewal comes through our own Bible reading and study, but more importantly, when we apply the teaching and the preaching that we hear in the church to our lives. Ephesians 4 and 24. And that you put on the new man. So it's not just enough to put off the old man. We can't just live in a kind of a limbo. We need to put on the new man. There has to be something that we replace our old man with because otherwise the old man is just going to come back and rise up again, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. <clears throat> the epistles to the Romans and Colossians go more into this. Romans thirteen twelve says, The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. That's putting on the new man, putting on Jesus into our lives. Colossians 3 and 10 says, And have put on the new man, which is renewed in, in knowledge, after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. So when we put on the new man, there shouldn't be any divisions. There shouldn't be anything that would cause us to have faults or issue with anyone else in the church. Part of the new man is that there are no boundaries. We are all following God together. And that should be in unity. When we walk after the Spirit, we won't walk in the ways of the flesh. Galatians 5.16 says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That old man, the way we used to live, it was only ever about ourselves. It was only ever about doing what we wanted, fulfilling our own lusts and desires. But when we walk in the Spirit, we're not going to walk in the flesh. 
For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to the one to the other, so you, that you cannot do the things that you would. There's a struggle going on inside every one of us. We choose whether we're going to walk in the spirit. We choose whether we're going to walk in the flesh each day. We make choices. And when we start to walk in the vanity of our mind, when we start to think our own ways, and do our own thoughts that are against the Word of God or our own carnal thinking, then we're starting to not walk in the Spirit. We're starting to walk after our own ways, and the only way is a slippery slope, going down to just only doing what we want with greediness. If I could get someone to the piano, please. When we walk in the flesh... We are walking a slippery slope that leads to doing only what we want with all greediness, as I just said. And the worst part is that we won't even realize how far away we've strayed. Because our hearts will be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. I beg you, I implore you, don't make the same mistake today. Don't let yourself become hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Don't Allow your own thoughts, the way you want to think, the way that you feel that things should be done to color the way that God wants you to walk. Don't walk in your own carnality and in your own lusts and in your own desires. And so, if we could all stand.